I'm Dan. I'm Elaine. And this is Sublime True Crime. And we're recording this drunk. If you want to skip the preamble on the case, skip forward to about six minutes in. We've been on a Zoom call with friends, haven't we? <laughs> Which has been lovely. But we're a little bit pissed. A bit sloshed. This is part two of the Black Panther. What have we done this week? Well, it's been Christmas. It's been Christmas? Duh. Did you have a good Christmas? Oh, I had a lovely Christmas. It was lovely. Considering we were fairly locked down, we couldn't go and see my lot down south because they were proper tier four lockdown. We had decent enough Christmas, didn't we? Lost, lots of lovely gifts, lots of lovely cheese and chocolate. I've eaten so much cheese. Oh, but honestly, it's been non-stop crap eating. It's been amazing. I think I've turned into a block of cheese. I'd be amazed if we don't have gout by New Year's. <laughs> Fat, cheese and red wine, <laughs> olives. <laughs> oh my God, chocolate, so much chocolate. I think I ate almost an entire box of Ferrero Rocher all to myself. <laughs> and I don't mean the little box, I mean like the big tray box. Well, we bought a tray of Ferrero Rocher before Christmas and they were all gone by Christmas Day to the point that I remarked on Boxing Day, I was going to have a Ferrero Rocher and they've all gone. So we went out, bought another box and then demolished those between the pair of us. <laughs> Me and my daughter, we've been sitting watching TV. On Christmas Day, we got home and we were sitting there watching um, Serenity, the mm. film. We were sitting watching that and eating Ferrero Rocher. And we just troughed our way through the whole box. Pretty much, yeah. And then we bought another box and you and I ate those. Yes. No more Ferrero Rocher allowed in this house. No, that's it for a while now. They've all gone. Just got the Thorntons, the Roses, <laughs> well, dairy the Thor- milk. Thornton's almost gone. I can see the box almost finished over there. Roses haven't been started yet. Not yet. Uh, yeah, so I hope you've all had a delightful Christmas as well, in whatever way you've managed to, to do that, however capacity it was. We put up a poll on Facebook earlier this week. Was it a poll? It was just a question, I think. Should we release the mixtape of outtakes from Sublime True Crime this year? And the result <laughs> was pretty much a yes, please do so. Um, so at some stage, I will edit together loads of the mistakes not all of them because there are so many it's mainly you swearing (laughs) what you don't know dear listener is that every time dan makes a mistake he doesn't just go oh he goes fuck (laughs) i can't do it in this one (laughs) fuck fucking hell (laughs) fucking hell you slag fuck's sake so what i should point out (laughs) is that this podcast is my baby i think it's fair to say that although we both present it it was it came from my idea it's the thing that I wanted to get started. I wanted to have Elaine involved and I do the editing. So there's a lot of it that is dependent on me. Um, I do an awful lot of the writing. So when I'm putting stuff together, if I get stuff wrong, I get really annoyed because it's stuff that I have to do. So generally it's mispronunciations or just various things that I get wrong, which do end up with me going, ah, fucking hell, fuck's sake, Dan, you fucking prick. Whereas when Elaine gets stuff wrong, it's a mispronunciation, but it's like, the police said, that, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, shall I do that again? <laughs> and it's ever so polite. And then you've got me going, just re-record it. It's fine. Just do it again. But it sounds like a proper abusive relationship. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds like you're terrified of doing something wrong and oh, me yeah, telling you otherwise. Sorry. Yeah, it really is. Please, please don't beat me. <laughs> That's my name. There's plenty of those. So, yes, I will try and edit those together and put it out. Um, with the caveat that it's not a proper true crime podcast. It is just a series of cock-ups. Just for fun. Just for fun. Just for fun. Which, to be fair, 
is the whole reason why we do this because it is your baby but we do do it just because it's an enjoyable way to spend a bit of time and it's quite nice to know that people enjoy listening to us as we do our little waffle yeah it's never going to be a money maker it was never designed to be a it was never maker. designed to be we do it for the pure love of it i do um, i know that there's a lot of people out there that think you put out a podcast people listen to it and you make money but the fact is that we don't have adverts we don't have merchandise we don't overly promote the show I mean, it's, I would like to say we break even, but we don't because it costs us money to put the show out there yeah. and never hosted. So it's it's a money loss. But it's for shits and giggles. For shits and giggles, we enjoy it. Which is why, coming back to it, we love the five-star reviews we get so much. Not so much the one-star reviews. I could have read it on Wikipedia. Well, yes, but you couldn't have read it in a southern and a northern accent. And in fact, if that's what you want to do, just fuck off and do that and don't tell us. Yeah. I wouldn't mind if we just read from Wikipedia. That'd be so much easier. Sod the research. Really well, but yeah, it is so lovely to get nice reviews from people who've actually enjoyed listening to us because the whole point of us doing it is just because it's nice. Yes. Well, it's not nice, it's true crime, so obviously it's brutal and horrible. It's, it's brutal it's... and horrible, but we try and put a funny spin on it and we take the piss out, especially the people that get arrested and, and charged. Yeah, because they deserve it. Yeah, fuckers. <laughs> Anyway. Anyway, coming up, part two of the Black Panther story. Please listen to it, enjoy it, have a wonderful new year, and we will either see you in the new year with a new episode, or maybe, if Dan gets shit together, you might get the cock up episode. <laughs> You've got an extra Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Dan has no excuse, Dan's got no work at the moment. Come on, you put your finger out. You might get the cock-up episode. I can't even say it. You might get the episode of cock-ups before the end of the new year. Or maybe in the new year. If you're very lucky. If you're very lucky. Enjoy the second part of the show. Scott and Yarba brought in, and their plan had been to rescue Leslie and catch the kidnapper at the same time. These days, kidnappings and ransoms are rarely seen on the news, and one of the main reasons for that is said to be this case. Whereas it is now commonplace for a media blackout to be enforced, the details of Leslie's disappearance quickly made their way to the media. A freelance reporter had heard that a kidnap incident was underway and he chose to give the story to a radio station who took the decision to broadcast it. By the evening, the story was shown on the news on TV. No phone call was received at the Swan Shopping Centre. In the meantime, Nielsen had forced his terrified captive to record a heartbreaking message to her parents. Two days after being kidnapped on the 16th of January at 11.45pm, the family received a phone call. The recording was played down the line. On the crackly sound that can be heard on the cassette, Leslie Whittle could be heard saying, quote, There's nothing to worry about, Mum. I am OK. End quote. It went on to say that someone from the family was to go to a phone box in Kidsgrove to retrieve a second message that had been hidden behind the backboard of the phone box. The recording lasted just one minute and 29 seconds. The family spoke to the police and arranged for Ronald Whittle, Leslie's brother, to drop the ransom money off. At this stage, the police hadn't realised the connection between the post office murders and the kidnapping. As a result, whilst the local police were collecting evidence from the post office crimes, Scotland Yard were handling the kidnapping and neither force was communicating or sharing evidence with each other. It was agreed that Ronald would be monitored by a police radio network that could give him assistance within two minutes. 
The police spent two hours making extensive arrangements before allowing Ronald to leave Bridge North Police Station at 1.30 in the morning. Doesn't ever say what the extensive arrangements are. I'm assuming it must be getting together 50 grand's worth of cash. Yes. That would have taken some doing back then. Yeah, hell yeah. Ronald took with him a suitcase packed with £50,000 and drove to Kidsgrove. Unfortunately, and my heart dropped when I read this, it was an area that he was unfamiliar with and he struggled to find the phone box. After finally finding the phone box, he spent 30 minutes looking for the message before he found a Dymo tape message directing him to Bathpool Park, about a mile and a half away. The message instructed him to, quote, go to the top of the lane and turn into no entry. Go to the wall and flash lights. Look for torchlight. Run to torch. Further instructions on torch, end quote. All of the reports that I've read say that Ronald arrived at Bathball Park 19 minutes late. I can't find where the timeline has come from. I'm assuming it was set up by Nielsen, possibly with the recording that was played down the phone. What does seem apparent is that Nielsen had driven the route himself before and had worked out the time the ransom should be delivered. But there's never anything specific that says you've got to be there by set times. Yeah, but I suppose there has to be some sort of a time plan on it. You would think so, wouldn't you? With poor Ronald not knowing where the phone box was. Oh, it's just... Not like these days where you can go, actually, we'll walk three words it and we'll get to a metre of it. No. Ronald did as he was instructed and turned into the no-entry sign. In the dock, he did not see the low wall that edged the railway bridge. He drove to the end of the lane where he stopped, flashed his lights and then got out of the car. Getting no response, he shouted. But there was no one there. Ronald left the park and met up again with the police at a pre-arranged meeting point. A search was made of Bathpool Park by West Mercia Police, but nothing was found. Oh, how would you feel? I know. Christ, poor bastard. A courting couple had parked up in a car close to where the ransom was to have been left and subsequently told police that they had seen flashing lights which had baffled them. They also said that they had seen a patrol car driving through the area, a claim that Staffordshire Police emphatically denied. West Midlands Police contacted West Mercia Police a week later. These are all the different regions in, in the north. Yeah, so I suppose much in the same way that, um, I guess, state troopers in the US operate their own districts. Mm. Um, nowadays in the UK, the whole police office is still segregated, but they work together much closer. Mm. Back in the day, there just wasn't that crossover unless there was a really big case. Yeah, there just wasn't the same communication. Mm. On the same night of the failed ransom drop, a car had been left near the Dudley Freightliner Terminal, where security guard Gerald Smith had been shot in the back six times and was now in hospital recovering. Amazing that he made it to hospital after being shot six times. Another spoiler alert, it goes on to say that he survived for a year and then died of his injuries after a year and a day. Nielsen had shot Smith while committing another armed robbery before checking the ransom trail. Must have been desperate for fucking money. I know. A cassette tape had been found in the car and it had Leslie Whittle's voice on it, asking her relatives to cooperate with the kidnapper. It also had her slippers and a roll of plastic tape, all of which linked Nielsen to the kidnapping. Turns out he'd driven to the place in his own car, shot the security guard, and left his car there. Ballistics evidence, along with fingerprints on the cartridges, also linked the same man to the Freightliner shooting, the previous post office robberies, and thus the Black Panther murders. It was the first time they linked all of the cases together. And just because he was so careless to just leave his car there? Yeah. If he thought he was picking up 
the modern day equivalent of half a million pounds in cash, why would you go and rob somewhere else in the meantime? I know. It just doesn't make sense at all. Doesn't. It's almost like he's kind of got hooked on the thrill or something. Mm. Seven weeks after the kidnapping, on the 5th of March, Chief Superintendent Booth and Ronald Whittle appeared together on both national and local television. This is weeks after this ransom thing, by the way. Yes. The following day, they were contacted by a headmaster at a local school. He told police that a pupil had brought him a piece of Dymo tape that read, quote, drop suitcase into hole, end quote. Following this, other pupils had found a torch that had been wedged at the grills of what was locally known as the glory hole. We were... <laughs> it didn't used to mean what it means now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it means now, darling. Well, how do you... What the, no. no. This was a cat's ventilation shaft at the old Harecastle Tunnel in Bathpool Park. The boys who found the torch had handed it to the headmaster several weeks before, but none of them had realised the significance of the find until the television broadcast. God, how gutted would you feel? Oh, you'd just feel sick, wouldn't you? Absolutely sick. With this revelation, police started a second thorough search of Bathpool Park. They began with a so-called glory hole, and inside, a detective constable found a Dymo tape machine and a roll of Dymo tape. An inspection of a second shaft revealed nothing. In the third shaft, which was the deepest of the three, and had once acted as an air ventilation shaft for a coal mine, it was then uncapped and inspected. But due to HM Inspector of Mines regulations, the shaft needed to be checked for gas. And given how late in the day it was by this stage, the investigation was suspended. I find that baffling. I know. I know it's six or seven weeks after the, the kidnapping, and the, and, but even so. Yeah, and health and safety wasn't such a big thing then. No, no, you'd send down the, the youngest or... Yeah. Or, or the female I mean, colleague. So I remember rattling around in the back of a in the boot of a car being driven around because there was no requirement for seatbelts when I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. That was great fun. Yeah, but yeah, they just didn't have the same ideals. No. Then. Different. On Friday, the 7th of March 1975, after gas tests had been passed, police officers and mine rescue staff entered the third shaft. 22 feet down, about seven metres. On the first landing was a broken police torch which had been dropped the previous day during the search. Another 45 feet, 14 metres down, on a second landing was a cassette tape recorder. And on a third landing, which was 54 feet down, which is 16 metres, they found a rolled up sleeping bag that was acting as a pillow, as well as a yellow foam mattress and a survival blanket. Leslie's body was found hanging from a steel wire just 7 inches, 18 centimetres, from the bottom of the shaft. Although doctors were not able to determine the exact date of her death, it was believed to have occurred within days after her kidnapping. Had the police chosen to conduct a search when Nielsen issued his first demand, there is every chance that Leslie may have been found alive. A few feet below the third landing, a few feet below the third landing, police found three-inch strips of elastoplast, which had been used as a blindfold, a pair of brown size seven trainers, more dymo tape, a cassette tape, a microphone and lead, a thermos flask, blue cord trousers and a reporter's notepad. Despite recovering so many items, all of which were forensically inspected, only one partial fingerprint was found, which was on the reporter's notepad. Every other fingerprint investigation in the country had practically been put on hold, yet no match could be found. In the days following the discovery of Leslie's body, 
The Sunday Express revealed that its Manchester office had received two phone calls from a man describing himself as the Black Panther. They quoted the man as saying, quote, Listen, listen carefully. I did not kill the Whittle girl. End quote. Such was the fallout from the bungled case. The man who led the investigation into the kidnapping, Chief Superintendent Bob Booth, was subsequently demoted from CID to a uniformed beat officer, which is a hell of a drop. It really is. It was also revealed that although Scotland Yard finished up with several million handwritten index cards, along with tens of thousands of statements and other documents, Home Office computer scientists were sceptical that computerising the case, which in those days was a rare occurrence, would be an improvement. Also, the then Chief Constable of West Mercia Police, Alex Rennie, ordered that all of the notes not used during the trial should be destroyed. He later went on to say, quote, We took thousands of notes and interviewed hundreds of witnesses and potential suspects. The reasons I had the notes destroyed, being it might have been poking our noses into the private lives of people and upsetting families. Journalists and others had virtually demanded to be given the information, and that would have been dishonest and might have caused irreparable damage to families. End quote. What the fuck? Do you know what? As long as it was to protect people's private lives and not to cover up any police cock-ups or to hide any information that could prove embarrassing to police, which is exactly what it sounds like, then I suppose that's fine. If you tell the police stuff, then you know that it's going onto the record and you know that it can be read. Mm. Whether that's embarrassing or not, that is the case. So to then say I'm going to destroy stuff because, oh, I don't want to embarrass somebody, that's ridiculous. He went on to say, quote, In this instance, we took statements and information from a tremendous number of people on the premise, and I gave my word that if it was not wanted in evidence, it would never be disclosed, end quote. Because the police were known not to be liars in the 1970s. He also said that the destroyed notes were not of evidential value and were not used in court. There have been various theories around Leslie's death. Some believe that Nielsen had pushed her off the ledge where he kept her, and others believe that Nielsen was not present when Leslie died, as he'd panicked when the ransom wasn't delivered, and that he'd fled the scene in the belief that police were closing in on him. Leslie's post-mortem revealed the cause of death was from vagal inhibition rather than strangulation. Vagal inhibition is a condition that can happen when pressure is placed on the neck where the vagus nerve runs and can lead to sudden death. It's often put more simply for this case, the shock of the fall had caused Leslie's heart to stop. Sadly, what is almost definite is that Leslie may have lived in the dark for a considerable period of time before falling to her death. Notes from the pathologist tell us that Leslie weighed only 7 stone, 44 kilograms, when she was found. Her stomach and intestines were completely empty and she had lost a considerable amount of weight and was emaciated. The conclusion he came to was that she had not eaten for a minimum of three days, which is the length of time it takes her food to pass through the body but he said the actual duration may have been much longer. After this, Nielsen became Britain's most wanted man. Not that it deterred him, he continued raiding post officers, although he managed not to kill anyone else. A few months later, in December 1975, Nielsen was walking down a side road to the main A60 trunk road leading out of Mansfield in North Nottinghamshire. With a hold all over his shoulder, he noticed a small police car parked up and overlooking the main road. Figuring that the two cops inside were on traffic duty, but not wanting to draw attention to himself, Nielsen averted his gaze as he walked past the car. Now, when I wrote this, I was going to write down, he noticed a small panda at the side of the road. (laughs) 
And then I thought, is anyone going to know what a panda car is? They don't call them that anymore, do they? No, no. So the old police cars I used to use were panda cars. I don't know if that was the make, the model, or just a nickname, or it's what. Not, it's not just a nickname because they were black and white. I, I assume so, but I don't know. Panda cars. <laughs> Could be zebra cars. Could be. Zed cars. <laughs> Indeed. I'm just saying random things. <laughs> Carry on. Marjorie! <laughs> The two officers, Tony White and Stuart McKenzie, saw Nielsen actively avoiding them and decided to stop him for questioning. And I can't help but wonder whether this was down to police brilliance and intuition or whether it was just the result of two very bored coppers who wanted to do something other than looking at cars speeding past. Either way, they stopped him and they asked him where he was going. Nielsen replied he was on his way home from work and as the police asked more questions, including his name, which Nielsen replied to with a fake name, he started to panic, more so when they asked him to write his name down. He opened his holdall and he pulled out a sawn-off shotgun. Just to completely compound masses. <laughs> yes. I'm a bit suspicious, and here's a gun. Yeah, I, I would like to think that in that situation, you would carry on talking and try and talk your way out of it. I suppose it must get to a stage where they're going to go, what's in the bag? God, shit. <laughs> he quickly ordered White, who was sat in the passenger seat, into the back of the car. White? Staring down the barrel of a shotgun, quickly complied and went to open the car door, causing Nielsen to bark, no time for that, climb the seat. Nielsen took White's place in the front passenger seat and jammed his gun into Mackenzie's armpits. Ordering the terrified cop to drive the six miles or so to Rainworth, with strict instructions for the pair of them not to look at him, Nielsen only had a few minutes to plan his next move. His mind must have been racing, as Mackenzie gently explained that in order to get to Rainworth, he would need to turn the car around as they were heading in the wrong direction. Nielsen agreed, threatening that he would kill both officers if there were any tricks. As Mackenzie made his way along Southwell Road, Nielsen asked if they had any rope. Is that something the police would carry with them? I suppose it's possibly something they have in the boot, but in the car? Not in the car itself. No. White started to look for rope in the back. Meanwhile, Mackenzie was approaching a junction in the road. Seeing an opportunity, Mackenzie violently wrenched the steering wheel left and then right and asked Nielsen, which way, left or right? The momentary confusion of being asked for directions as the car veered from one side to another caused Nielsen to look at the road ahead, dropping his gun a few inches as he did so. White saw his chance and he pushed the gun forwards. Mackenzie slammed on the brakes and the gun went off. Although the bullet had grazed White's hand, nobody had been seriously hurt by the shot. White later told a BBC documentary, quote, It all happened very quickly, but I got the gun off him and he was still struggling and I had my left arm across his throat. I began to hit him in the face with my left elbow, still clutching the shotgun in my right fist, end quote. After the gun had been fired, he admitted that he thought his colleague had been killed. Quote, I thought I'd cocked it up. I thought to myself, I've cocked it up. He's gone, end quote. The car had stopped outside the junction chip shop in Rainworth. Mackenzie bolted out of the car, falling and banging his head on the road as he tried to escape. He staggered to his feet and ran towards the fish and chip shop, screaming for help. White, meanwhile, continued his struggle with Nielsen. Convinced that he could be shot again, he kicked the attacker in the stomach. Roy Morris and Keith Wood were two men in the queue outside the chip shop. They saw the disturbance and ran towards the car to help overpower Nielsen, who onlookers later described as fighting like a wild animal. According to most reports, Wood, 
and I love this phrasing, subdued the gunman with a blow to the neck, which makes it sound rather coordinated as opposed to him just battering Nielsen, which I suspect may have been a more accurate description. If I was in that scenario, I would be just lashing out in every direction. <laughs> You'd be actively going. subduing. <laughs> <laughs> Morris then grabbed the wrists of the freshly subdued thug before White snapped a pair of handcuffs on him. That wasn't quite the end of the ordeal for Nielsen, though. The locals continued to attack him, so much so that the officers ended up having to protect him. And there is a really famous photo of Nielsen following his arrest, where he looks like he's been through 12 rounds with Tyson Fury. If you search on Google for Leslie Whittle, it is one of the first pictures that comes up, and it was used all over the newspapers the next day. He looks absolutely battered. He really does. It's quite quite amazing. But then we were talking about this, and I said I think there was quite a lot more loyalty towards the police yeah. back in those days, and especially if you were standing around and then saw someone attacking a police officer, you would run to assist them at that point. Yeah. They hauled Nielsen over to a set of iron railings and handcuffed him there before calling for backup. When they got him back to the police station, Nielsen's fingerprints were taken. They were quickly found to be a match to fingerprints found in the shaft where Leslie Whittle had been found. In the interview that followed, Nielsen confessed to the kidnapping of Leslie Whittle. In a statement given to DCS Harold Wright, head of Staffordshire CID and Commander Morrison of Scotland Yard, his confession stretched to 18 pages. The decision was made to search Nielsen's house in Bradford, where he lived with his wife and daughter. They quickly found a large number of guns and other paraphernalia. More weapons were found in the attic, along with masks and gloves, as well as other evidence linking him to the post office murders and the death of Leslie Whittle. Ray Wagg, a detective with West Mercia Police, worked on the Leslie Whittle murder. He told BBC Shropshire in an interview that Nielsen was merciless. Quote, you do what he tells you to do, otherwise you die. He was a determined man in that anyone who challenged him died. End quote. It does look that way, doesn't it? It's the more he went on, the worse he was getting. Yes, definitely. He went on to say that despite being a family man, Nielsen was really a loner who planned his crimes using his military background. When he had been planning to collect the ransom money, he explained how Nielsen had positioned himself in such a way that he was able to watch Ronald Whittle following his instructions so that he could make sure that the police were not involved. In the witness box at Nielsen's trial, Wag described him as, quote, calculating. He was a small man, a very fit-looking man. He always tried his best to deceive, but in an apparently pleasant way, while giving evidence, end quote. Nielsen's trial took place at Oxford Crown Court, and Nielsen's defence lawyer argued that his client hadn't murdered Leslie. Instead, he suggested, Leslie had fallen from the ledge accidentally and had hung herself. Nielsen, he claimed, had actually cared for her. He'd fed her chicken soup, spaghetti and meatballs, and bought her fish and chips and chicken legs. None of which helps explain why she was found emaciated, or why Nielsen, who presumably would have been checking in on her as part of the care he was supposedly giving, chose to leave her body when he found it. I don't think leaving somebody naked is caring for them either. No, leaving she someone was... naked in the middle of January. Yeah. yeah, she could have had that dressing gown. She was in a dressing gown and slippers and he took them off and left her with a sleeping bag. There's no justification for that either. He was not looking after her at all. No. Evidence also showed that Nielsen had provided his victim with a bottle of brandy, six paperback books, a copy of the Times and two magazines for reading, a small puzzle, two brightly coloured napkins. These items were all found in the shaft and in the subterranean canal running below it by the police. Now, I'm guessing it would have been pitch black. So all that reading material wouldn't have helped her at all. No. And I'm also guessing that there would be 
rubbish accumulating from other, other places and going past. So a lot of that stuff might not have been from her. No, probably wasn't. Just washed along. Yeah. Gilbert Gray, QC, in his closing speech for the defence, told how Nielsen had provided for Whittle. He asked the jury whether they believed any hangman's noose would be padded and lagged with 77 and a half inches of elastoplast to avoid chafing, or whether any scaffold would be cushioned for comfort by a rubber mattress and sleeping bags. He also made the point that Leslie would not have died had the wire not snagged on a stanchion, because her feet were only a few inches from the bottom of the shaft. Quote, her height from the neck was four feet, and there was a five feet length of ligature giving an overall length of nine feet. The drop from the landing to the floor of the tunnel was a six feet eleven inches drop, so that if it had not been for the unforeseen snagging, which shortened the tether, there would have been two feet to spare, and she would have landed on her feet at the bottom of the shaft. End quote. Here's a thought. She also would not have died if she hadn't been kidnapped, taken from a bed, stripped naked and left in a shaft. Yeah. Yeah. He also asked the jury to consider why Nielsen would have bothered keeping Leslie alive once he'd recorded the ransom messages. He had no need for her after that, and he could have simply killed her and hidden the body. He finished his speech by admitting that, quote, Nielsen started something that went hideously wrong, end quote. Which is the understatement of the fucking year. No shit, Sherlock. In July 1976, Nielsen was convicted of the murder of Leslie Whittle. He was given a life sentence and a total of 61 years running concurrently, with the longest being 21 years, for other offences. Following sentencing, Nielsen was taken to the cell below the courts. Gilbert Gray visited him and found him curled up in a fetal position in the corner of his cell. He was said to be dejected and allegedly filled with remorse for Whittle and her family. Oh, the poor bastard. I think it's the fact that it's only about that. He's not worried about the post office workers, is it? No. Three weeks after that, he was convicted of the murder of three post office workers. He was given three more life sentences. Nielsen was acquitted of the attempted murders of postmistress Margaret Grayland and PC Tony White. Instead, he was found guilty of inflicting grievous bodily harm on Mrs Grayland and of possessing a shotgun with the intent of endangering life at PC Mansfield. The offences regarding the shooting of security guard Gerald Smith were left on file, as Smith had died more than a year and a day after the shooting. An enormous amount of blame was placed at the feet of the police, with suggestions that they didn't take Nielsen's initial demands and threats seriously enough. There's also questions as to why they didn't order a press blackout, or thoroughly search Bathpool Park when Nielsen first ordered a ransom drop-off there. There was also disappointment that the police were able to neither identify or locate the Black Panther by the time they had found Leslie's body. Ultimately, it is entirely possible that if Nielsen had decided to stop being a criminal following Leslie's death, he may never have been caught. And the fact that he was caught is partly down to luck and partly down to the fact that two patrol officers were savvy enough to notice that Nielsen was acting suspiciously. In 2008, with Nielsen suffering from motor neurone disease, he made an appeal against his sentence. A request was made to commute it to a maximum of 30 years. Mr Justice Tier ruled that he must never be released from prison, saying, quote, this is a case where the gravity of the applicant's offences justifies a whole life order. The manner in which the young girl was killed demonstrates that it too involved a substantial degree of premeditation or planning. It also involved the abduction of the young girl. The location and manner of Leslie Whittle's death indicates that she must have been subjected by the applicant to a dreadful and horrific ordeal. 
End quote. Nilsson died in hospital in December 2011, still serving his sentence, no doubt in far more comfort than he ever afforded Leslie Whittle. An interesting side note to all of this is Donald Nilsson's wife, Irene. When Nilsson was first caught in Mansfield, Irene became worried that he failed to return home. Irene chose to burn around 50 postal orders in the coal fire. That's what I always do when I'm completely innocent and you're late home from work. <laughs> it's perfectly natural behaviour. It's like throwing oh, 50 pound notes on the fire. Dan's late from work. <laughs> I think he's a completely normal person. I'm just going to burn a load of money. <laughs> I had wondered what had happened with her. It was all year very quiet about her. So all of the research, and this actually backs up the point we made at the start, um, all of the research I did, there was next to nothing about Irene. I had to dig and dig and dig to find out about her. Mm-hmm. When police searched the house, they noticed the charred remains of the postal orders within the chimney. Irene Nielsen was later convicted of cashing over 80 postal orders said to have been stolen in one of her husband's post office raids. Irene, for her part, claims that Donald forced it into cashing in the postal orders at various post offices over a large area. In court, her solicitor, Barrington Black, what a great name. It really is, isn't it? <laughs> told the court how Donald Nielsen had complete domination of his wife, describing him as, quote, a Svengali who had exercised a hypnotic influence. He was a quasi-military figure who barked orders at his wife and daughter and woe betide anyone who disobeyed him, end quote. And I can believe that of him from what we've heard. Black went on to say that he felt that this was confirmed when he visited Donald Nielsen in his top security cell. Irene, then aged 42, had no previous convictions, which meant that her most likely outcome was being put on probation. A court report disagreed, saying that probation would not be suitable. Black followed this up by pressing hard for Irene to instead be fined, asking the magistrates if she really deserved to be harshly treated for a situation that was forced upon her. He described her last three years with Nielsen before his arrest as hell. The magistrates denied his request, although they sympathised with Irene being before the courts for the first time, her activities were seen to be a deliberate course of conduct. Irene received a 12-month sentence. Gilbert Gray QC was briefed to represent her in the appeal and he produced Donald Nielsen as a surprise witness. He told the judge, sitting with two magistrates, that he was keen for the court to be aware of the pressure and constraints placed upon Irene as a result of her husband. He described Nielsen as, quote, the man who struck fear and dread into pretty much the whole community, and this woman lived with him, end quote. Unfortunately for Irene, the judges said that they found Donald Nielsen's testimony to have a vagueness. They upheld Irene's conviction and sentence. There was some good news for her, though, while she was incarcerated. A major newspaper paid a large amount of money for the Nielsen story. In an interview with the Sunday People six years later, Irene Nielsen said that she doubted she would have been jailed had she not been Nielsen's wife. I have to say, I doubt she would have been jailed if she hadn't burnt all those postal orders. Yeah, to be fair. Yeah, had she not done something criminal and covered up for her husband. Mm. Yeah. She claimed that everyone had wanted blood after her husband's trial. She supposedly served eight months before being released early for good behaviour. And that is the story of the Black Panther. I'm amazed that I'd never heard of it before. I am. Yeah, I was reading through it and it's not even familiar. There's a lot of stuff that I come across and go, oh, actually, some of that sounds vaguely familiar. Mm. Not at all. And considering he died, what, 
nine years ago, ten years ago, and it was back in the news then. Yeah, still don't recall it at all. No. Really weird. But yeah, nasty piece of work by the sounds of it. Yes, it really was. You do wonder how his life would have turned out if his mother hadn't died when he was so young and if he'd stayed in the army. There's so many different things that could have made a difference in his life. I do wonder, if, like you said, if he stayed in the army, if he would have been less of a bastard. But I also think that it was just delaying the inevitable. He obviously had no real skill set that he could utilise. Yes. And he would have just been fitter and mental. What are your thoughts? Let us know. You can email us, dan at sublimetruecrime.com or elaine at sublimetruecrime.com. Or you can reach us via the Facebook page. Just search for Sublime True Crime. If you're enjoying this series, please leave us a review. We would love a five-star review, please. As it will help us to reach more people. And if you want to leave us a review, you can do it at... sublimetruecrime.com forward slash rate. We'll do our best to read out the five-star reviews on the podcast where we can. If you can think of any cases that you'd like us to cover, please let us know. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.